Amen. Golly, look at you. We got some extra people in the first service today. You're looking happy. What could it be? Did you get a little extra sleep last night? Oh, good. I was thinking to myself, because you always have this panic as a pastor to let everybody know about uh, time changes, but it's 2019, everybody's phone just does it, and your alarm happens through your phone, so it's possible that if you didn't know, you just woke up this morning, and you didn't know that you got an extra hour of sleep, and you feel fantastic, and you didn't know why. Well, it shows. You look great. Uh, this morning, uh, we did setup, but I could just tell. Everybody's peppy. Some guys got here early, and things are done. And Wow, you don't feel like you're having to push as hard to get everybody going? Maybe that's a lesson to us, though, that we could maybe put a little extra time into our Saturday night sleep schedule so Sunday's a little bit better. Maybe? On other Sundays? Maybe? Does that sound a little preachy? Well, my name is Ben. I'm the preaching pastor here at Hope Church, uh, and I am glad that you're here. Today we're going to be in 1 John chapter 2. You can open your Bibles to there. You can turn or tap your way there. If you don't have a copy of the Scripture, we'd love to give you a copy. Uh, and please don't panic. We'll have those words on the screen for you. Uh, the last several weeks, we've been going through a series called Certainty that we're going to, to try and understand the main message of the book of 1 John, small book in the New Testament, written by one of the guys who was with Jesus from the beginning, the Apostle. John also wrote the Gospel of John, also wrote the book of Revelation, and these three other epistles, these letters that, Paul, uh, that John wrote to churches where he is helping them to address situations that are coming up. And just because humanity is humanity, even though it's been 2,000 years, we can feel with some level of uh, poignancy, some level of sensitivity, the same issues that they had then, now. The issues that they had then was a question of, of certainty. How do you know in the midst of so many different beliefs, in the midst of so many different options, how do you know even when leadership says to you, we have a new revelation? That was what was happening at the time. These people were saying, we have a new knowledge. We have a secret teaching. And you must follow us from what we have believed to now what is new. John had to leave the church. Think about what that would be like on a Sunday morning. Some of you are new to Hope Church, and that's great. But some of you have been here for a long time. And for some of you, there has been a level of credibility built up from the pastors at Hope Church. What would it do to your faith if you came here one morning and we said, guys, listen. I know we've been going this direction when it comes to who Jesus is. But I've got something new. What would happen? What would you do? How would you know? What would you use as a standard by which to test what we're saying? If you really think about what that would actually feel like, there would be a part of you that would say, well, I've got to go to the scriptures. Okay. Okay. Do you have a confidence in your understanding of the scriptures? You feel like you could sit down across the table from me and teach me what I've messed up on the scriptures. That would be intimidating, wouldn't it? Not to toot my own horn, but this is what I do. 
Do you think you would be able to do that? Boy, I certainly hope that you would. And the certainty that John is giving the people that were uh, having this experience where they have come to Christ, they've seen their whole life change, they went from a works-based lifestyle, I'm just guessing that based on what we see from Scripture, based on what we see in our own hearts and in the world today, it's either A or B. That's why the sheet says gospel versus religion. There's not a third column. It's just gospel versus religion versus, no, it's just religion. Because it doesn't matter if you believe or if you don't believe, and even your don't believe is a belief, you still end up trying to give yourself your own identity, trying to give yourself your own worth, trying to establish your own standards for beauty and morality. Trying to measure up or not. And all of that is opposed to the gospel where God just gives you that grace. So you've received that grace, you've experienced the freedom that comes from it, and then the people who helped you to come to know that freedom say to you, we've got something new. Do you understand why they would have difficulty with that? There's a part of me that thinks about my children whom I'm raising in a world that has lots of different options and I'm scared for them. I've gone from being the kid who's mad at mom and dad for censoring certain experiences or TV shows to now the parent who says, we're not going to do that anymore. And my kids are young. I'm nervous about what's going to pull their heart one way or another, pull their mind one way or another. How naive, though, not to think that the same forces aren't at work on me. We need this, this test, this standard, this means by which we can gain certainty of what we've known. Let's read together. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Here's what it says. Children... It's the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us. They weren't of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you have all knowledge. I'm sorry. You all have knowledge. Important word order there. <laughs> you don't have all knowledge. Let's just be real. Uh, but you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Who is the an- um, This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the, fa- the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has been taught you, abide in him. Okay, there's a lot there. And this last section or almost last section of John chapter 2 
parallels with some other passages in the book of First John. They have some stuff in First John chapter 4 that kind of pulls together the same theme. So like we've done the last couple of weeks, we're going to kind of preach a message on a theme from First John that's seen in a couple different places. But if you put them all next to each other and kind of read them all together, you'll see that there is a, a trial, a possible problem. Then there's a test that you apply in order to give yourself some way forward. And then there's a triumph. There's a win. There's a moment of realizing there's a way forward even in this push back and forth, this pull back and forth on what to believe and how to know and how to know that what you believed is what you should believe. It says, I write these things about those who are trying to deceive you. If you were listening, you heard me use the word antichrist or even antichrists, plural. If you know much about the scriptures or even Christian culture, you may think to yourself, Antichrist, isn't that the like uber bad guy, the devil in skin, who comes at the end times and tries to steal everybody's babies? Yeah, yeah. Read Revelation. There is Antichrist in that way. But the same guy who wrote Revelation also wrote this book, and he is referring to Antichrists, to people who preach against Christ. That's anti-against Christ. They're pulling people away from Christ. And it's saying that there are those who are trying to deceive you. Who are these people? It's not just me. I hope that I'm not ever going to put you in a place where you have to try and decide if what I've said is biblical or not. I want you to be good Bereans. I always want you to be reading scripture and testing what I'm saying against scripture. But I hope I never put you in a place where you have to believe something that's not in scripture. God help me that we have structures at Hope Church to prevent that. David and Josh have the same level of education that I do, and they're constantly checking what I'm saying. But beyond even the walls of a church, you are attempt, there's, the world is attempting to deceive you constantly. And we have to broaden our understanding of what that means in order to be well defended against it. It says, First uh, John two eighteen, children, it's the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. On the authority of Holy Scripture, there are those who are trying to deceive you, and there are many of them. Coming from lots of different angles. They're not just people who are preaching other forms of religion with that as its label. I don't know how often you're tempted to go to a Muslim community center. It's much more nuanced than that. It's more of a pull on what you want. Who you are as a Christian is not just rational. We talked about that a little bit last week and two weeks ago. Who you are as a Christian is not just what your brain thinks. It's also what your heart wants. You're not just a brain, in jar, a brain in a jar. You're a full creation. God has made you with lots of different parts. And those parts each are susceptible to this deception. The sales experience. When it goes well for a salesperson, it's not about teaching you the right reasons to choose their product. It's about hooking you with a desire. And then pulling you in whether or not it's the best option for you. It doesn't come through your heart. It comes through your belly. It comes through what you want. It comes through what you like, who you like. We talk about this a lot, but I hope that it's penetrating. The people that you think are impressive or cool are automatically going to have a direct road into what you believe. 
You have to be careful about who you think is impressive or cool. The people that you like and the people that you admire are going to have a tremendous amount of influence on your heart. It's easy to think about that with your children. You can watch these these, um, internetainers, internet people, these YouTube stars, these people that have these whole gigantic following and it's through some sort of new media and you're not really sure how your kid even heard about it, but now they're really into it and you can just see that if that kid, that, that little internet personality said jump, your kid would say how high? And it's not through reason, it's through admiration. And of course, we are often pulled by those we love. I hold on to this as an encouraging thing that I can teach my kids one thing or another, but you have to realize that the people who have spoken into your life from the beginning, the people whose loins from which you have sprung, because that's where you're from and because you know that about them, whether it's biological or adoption parents, you have these deep-set foundations from what they taught you, whether it was true or false. Whatever your mother said at some point, that's going to fall down deep into your soul. And if it's true, praise God. If it's not, though, well, you got a lot of work to do. And of course, lastly, and I would put it last on this list, is just what you think. Objectively hard reason. We're not very good at that anymore. We're much more concerned with what's trendy than what's reasonable. And yet, of course, there are people that are making reasoned arguments, and those reasoned arguments can have an effect. So, when these, all of these different pulls are coming, how do you test these trials? When these trials come against your heart and against your mind and start to pull you away from what you have been given in Christ, how do you test them? Well, it says it right there in verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. Verse 23, 2. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Said there's a parallel passage in John chapter 4. It says the same thing or something similar. It says in verse 2 of chapter 4. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. What he's saying is the way that you're going to test this stuff is to hold them up to the Jesus that you have had presented to you in Scripture. Specifically, and it's given you lots of different ways to understand who this Jesus is. He is Jesus, who is the Christ. Jesus Christ. Christ is a title. We're going to talk about what it means. The Son of God, who has come in the flesh. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who has come in the flesh. In ancient times, they had an ichthus. I don't know if you've ever seen on the back of somebody's car, they have a fish. You know what I'm talking about? It doesn't happen too often anymore because if you're a Christian, you should hopefully be humble enough not to associate your driving with Jesus Christ. Uh, But uh, that ichthus used to be a symbol that was used for Christians to denote their Christianity to other Christians, sort of like a secret symbol. And why ichthus? Well, that word fish in Greek, that ichthus word, was also an acronym. 
Jesus Christ, Son of God. I think that was it. Just Jesus Christ, Son of God. And the reason that they used that was because who they were was defined by who Jesus is, was. Understanding who Jesus is thoroughly will give you a means by which to test what comes at you from the world and then from just your own soul, your own thoughts, your own loves and likes. How do we know what this is, this Jesus? Because many people will claim Jesus and yet actually do fail this test. In fact, I don't know of anybody who has ever tried to get Christians to believe what they believe who has not used the name of Jesus. Go all the way back, centuries and centuries and centuries, all the way back to the beginning. Nobody has tried to derail Christianity who has not attempted to use Jesus' name to do it. So it's not just the literal name of Jesus that we use as a test. It is who this Jesus is according to Scripture. The name of Jesus is helpful, and we'll get to it in just a second. But this concept of Jesus, as given us in Scripture, is what we have to use to test. So... There's, there's a lot of trickiness and nuance in the way that the enemy uses truth and then mixes in error. That's why you have to be careful and you have to think about who this Jesus is on all these different fronts and continue to learn about him so that your test will get that much more efficient. Jesus, who is the Christ. What does it mean when we say that Jesus is the Christ? Why was it so important that he was called Jesus Christ? It's not his last name. It's a title. It's a Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah. Maybe you already knew this, but I'm going to hopefully help some people understand it. The concept of Messiah was, more literally, the anointed one. So this person would be anointed with oil. They'd take oil and they'd anoint the head of an individual. And that could happen a lot of different times in a lot of different ways. Um, in the mornings now, I help my kids lotion up. It's getting cold, it's getting dry, they're going to get itchy and angry, and their skin's going to get weird, so we lotion up, head to tail. And I help them. Yeah, I get some arms or get a leg or help them get their face or whatever. And that's kind of an anointing. You would take oil at the time and you would apply it to an individual and you'd help kind of soften the skin and give them a good smell. But it was also something that was used in religious practice. It was also something that was used as a way to denote sort of a ceremony, some sort of a giving of the presence of God to an individual. Jesus was this anointed one, not only because he was anointed at one time or another, not only because the Holy Spirit came to rest on him at his baptism, but he was Messiah as an office in the sense of the way that Scripture talked about the one who was to come. The one who was to bring God's presence. The one who was to come and redeem and rescue. In the garden, we knew that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. In Abraham, we learned that his children, his seed would have this covenant with God, would be the one through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. We see through David that God would establish his king, and this king would be over all the nations. The most perfect place to see it is Psalm chapter 2. It says it this way, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah, his Christ, saying, let us burst their bones apart and cast away their cords from us. This is what is always happening. Gosh, I wish we had more time. You go back over the summer, we talked about Psalm 2 in a whole sermon. 
The idea is that you would rather reign in hell than serve in heaven. That's Milton. But I think it's so, so helpful. I would rather burst the bonds apart of the good king and run out into the wilderness alone, into the darkness alone, than serve him. But he who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision and he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This concept of Messiah was very well developed in the minds of those Jewish followers right as they were coming into the time of Jesus. And when Jesus takes that title upon himself, they understood that it meant something different than just leader that it actually meant redeemer. And yet, this title of son of God had so much more to it. We see it as Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, son of God. What does that mean? It is there in, in Psalm 2, the Lord said to me, you are my son. What is it talking about? Well, in the Old Testament, again, the, God would designate the king sort of like his son, meaning his representative on earth, the one who would bring about righteousness in his name. But to say that Jesus is the son of God had a lot more meaning to it, a lot more thorough understanding of Jesus's divinity. You have to understand this well because this is one of the big places where people try to punch apart Christianity. John chapter 1, same author in a different book, John chapter 1 said, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. This word, it comes clear as you read the rest of first, uh, John chapter 1. This word is Jesus and it's saying that this word is God. Why do we have this concept of the Trinity? Isn't that difficult? Well, the Trinity is one of the places where people most have, throughout history, attacked Christianity. And they've mostly done it with the person of Jesus. They've said, well, Jesus must have just been a man who took on God's presence at his baptism. Like a puppet that God used for a moment. So we see that in, in demoniacs, people that have demons that in, inhabit them and they and do all kinds of crazy stuff. Maybe there's just a divine version of that. Or maybe Jesus literally was God and he wasn't... God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, it's just God and it's modalism. The idea is that God is this one presence and he's got different hats he puts on. And he's got the Father hat and then he's got the Son hat. If you ever see a one-man show, sometimes they'll do that, where they'll put on makeup for two different characters and so they'll talk, one person have one person talk, and then they'll have the other person respond. And then they'll have that person talk again, and then the other person will respond again. And that's just because they've got makeup on two different sides. Do you get that? Modalism, that he's either the father or he's the son. What we have taught here, though, is something other than that, something bigger than that, and something so much greater than that, which is that Jesus is co-eternal. He is God, one. Yeah, he's a different person from God. 
I'm not saying you have to fully understand that, but I am saying that understanding the facts of that will be a test by which you can understand, is this other faith that I'm having proclaimed to me real? He is the Son of God, but he's also a man. He came in the flesh, the Son of Man. Jesus always calls himself in Scripture the Son of Man. It's interesting. You would think he would always be parroting his divinity, but he's parroting. He's always parading and, and trumpeting out his humanity. We say that we have one God as one in nature with three persons. But the person of Jesus, we say, has two natures, both divine and now human. He took that upon himself. The greater can always do that. We can't become God, but God can become Man. And then his very name, Jesus. It says in Matthew one twenty one, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name. This is an angel telling Mary. You shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. And again, in the Greek and then the English, there's part of you that's like, okay, so, but why does it Jesus, though? But in the Hebrew, you would get it because that word Jesus comes from the word Joshua, the word, this uh, ancient Hebrew word for to save. Jesus' name literally was Savior. And it was a name that was used a lot. And and we say Jesus, but Jude and and, and Joshua and all these different names kind of have that same root and the way that they conjugate words, it's all different. But we use the name Jesus instead of any of those others because we want to hold to what this angel is declaring there. His name is important because his office is declared by his name. He will save his people. Now, if that is Jesus... And you know of that Jesus, then it's possible, theoretically, for you to take different faiths and say whether or not they are Christianity. But that's not really what we're talking about, is it? This isn't a class in comparative religion. This is supposed to be a first aid kit in your movement from where you are to heaven someday. How do we triumph? Once we take that test and once we try and apply it to other things, how do we triumph? Because it is extremely possible that you will know who Jesus is and that this other thing is not him. And yet you'll choose the other thing. Can I tell you, it happens every day. It happens in the life of believers every day. You know the way you should go, but you don't. Why? You know you're following something that Jesus isn't, and even that Jesus hates, but you do it anyway. Why? Well, applying this test isn't just about your head anymore. It's also about your heart. It says in 2.27, the anointing, 27 and, yeah, just 27, The anointing that you received from him abides in you. The anointing that Jesus received is now on you. Not because you're him or because you deserve it, but because you're found in him. 
It's the concept of Christian salvation. It's not just that you just do a little bit more, that you work a little bit harder, that he's giving you a ladder, you're going to slowly start to climb. But instead, the hard break between religion and gospel, instead that he has done it for you. You receive it by faith, and it's declaring. This is a good news declaration moment. John is declaring that that anointing of God's presence, that anointing of God's Favor that is put on Jesus is also put on you. And if you come to that moment of salvation, if you come to that moment of true, invigorating, life-altering belief, then you've received that anointing. Not some second experience. It happens when you receive Him. It says in Ephesians, He anoints us with the Holy Spirit. He seals us with the Holy Spirit. He continues, abides in you. You've no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in him. Now, what is it saying there? Because it's saying you have no need for somebody to teach you. It's saying that his anointing is going to teach you about everything. He's saying that knowing Jesus and comparing these other things to Jesus isn't just about the facts or your head. It's about knowing Jesus so well that you can tell the imposter immediately. There's a crazy funny SNL sketch at one point about a doppelganger. Do you know that word? It's one of those fun words that the Germans have given us. Doppelganger is a lookalike. And there's a couple of guys, they're sitting on a piece of concrete out in the middle of some, I don't know, New York where or somewhere. And they're just businessmen eating sandwiches. And the guy goes, oh my gosh, dude, that's your doppelganger. And there's a, um, a guy somewhere farther away, and it's the same actor, but because there's cut or whatever, it looks like it's somebody else. And he's standing there, and he's got like a funny hat or a giant tie or something. But it's the same person, so he's like, oh my gosh, that's you. And then the third guy, they're like, it happens again. And then with the third guy, they're like, okay, I got it. That's your doppelganger. And it's this really, like, dowdy homeless man. <laughs> doesn't really matter that it's almost good. But they're like, oh, that is your doppelganger. And the guy's like, come on, that's not my doppelganger. And they're like, no, that is your doppelganger. And then all of a sudden, the tension really rises as one of the guys pulls out a gun and he's not sure which one to shoot because they look alike, but they don't because one's a homeless guy. This doesn't really work as well, and I tell you the joke. I've been married to Rachel for 10 years, and I keep telling her things I've seen, and she never laughs, so you shouldn't either. But... The point is, uh, in that trope, that film trope, where we're not sure which one to shoot because they both are claiming to be the real thing. It's a sci-fi trope, right? The alien's taken on the skin, and we're not sure if it's him or not. How do you know? If it looks the same, how do you know which one is the genuine article? Well, because you know the genuine article. You ask that one question that only that person would know because you spent so much time with them. That look in their eye, that way that they laugh, that that nuance that you only pick up from repetition, from hours, from intimacy. The mother can always tell the twin apart. Why? Because she knows. What John is putting all this together with is saying, you must abide in him. Church, if you were to have a deep down wise discernment that leads you to health and life in him, 
and not towards one of these antichrists that is pulling people away all the time. You will develop that sense as you know him. So read your Bible every day. Spend time praying every day. Are those just things that you're told to do? Like wash your hands, clean your plate. Or is it the most essential thing you could do? As you spend time with the one who has saved you and will be yours forever. So yes, talk to him. Spend time with him. Learn from him. Go on adventure with him. We're going to plant five more churches. Some of you are going to have to go on an adventure with him. Where it's dangerous. You're not sure if you're going to come out of it okay. But go through it with him. If we become a people who abide and know him, then we'll become really bright. We'll shine his light to the world and he will draw people to himself. When you lift high the sun, he's going to draw people to himself. It's only going to happen though as we abide. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, if we prep now for the Lord's Supper, I ask that you would remove these things that hinder, these sins that entangle, that have gotten into our hearts and gotten into our minds and have pushed us to see you and to see your ways as dry or boring or old or thin. I pray that you would wake us up, that through repentance in this moment, you would bring us back to yourself. I ask, Father, that you would give your people certainty because they know, really know you. Teach us to abide, Father. Anoint us with your presence. We pray these things in your Son's holy name. Amen.